You're listening to Transforming Insight, the podcast for anyone who has the ambition to transform their insight team and create an insight-driven organization. Your host is James Witcherly, Chief Executive of the Insight Management Academy and the author of the book Transforming Insight, The 42 Secrets of Successful Corporate Insight Teams. Hello again, and welcome to the latest episode of the Transforming Insight podcast. This one's called How to Build an Insight Team. In the previous two episodes of our podcast, we've looked at some of the key skills and attributes displayed by successful insight managers, analysts, and researchers. And what I called an insight perspective, that big picture awareness, focus on fundamental truths, and critical assessment of new ideas and arguments, which we always see in the very best insight people. But if we want to build a successful insight team, how do we go about finding, developing, and retaining talented people with those characteristics? To discuss that topic with me, I'm delighted to be joined again by Deborah Wormsley, one of the most inspirational corporate insight leaders I know. Deborah's led insight teams at British Airways, British Gas, Saga, Halfords, and now Virgin Atlantic, and she's recently joined the IMA as one of our part-time senior insight advisors. She's also got a very impressive form on this podcast. Out of the 38 episodes that we've published so far, episode 8, when she joined me to talk about her career, was one of the top five most downloaded episodes of all time, so no pressure. (laughs) (laughs) So, welcome Deborah, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. So, building an insight team, you've got great experience of working both in organisations yourself and building insight teams, but also, now a slightly different perspective, working with the IMA, having the luxury of seeing lots of other insight teams as well. So, when it comes to finding the best people to bring into corporate insight teams to start with, where would you start? Well, I've always taken quite a structured approach to recruitment, historically. So... Initially, I think that in most corporate organizations, HR teams prefer you to initially go through LinkedIn and, and, and that process. And I think we've commented before as, as the IMA on the fact that there's a diminishing use now of recruitment, specialist recruitment consultants. But you, we normally we would have to start with advertising ourselves as a, as a corporate organization. That's certainly been true of most that I've worked in. And that can often result in quite a kind of mixed bag of responses. <laughs> and I, I think one of the things that I would say is that don't, don't be afraid if you get to that point and you haven't found anybody that fits the criteria to, to start again. I've been through quite recently three rounds of recruitment for, for an, an insight exec within the team and that's gone right through LinkedIn to then using the in-house recruitment preferred supplier to then using a specialist recruiter. So obviously, if you can go straight to specialist recruiters, you're probably going to get there a lot faster. But sometimes you're not always going to get the people that you want on LinkedIn, but you have to be quite patient. And also just using your network as well, because I've often found just putting something out myself can alert people in my network to people that they know that might be interested. And sometimes that gets a lot better result. It's all quite far removed, isn't it, from a place where like 10, 15 years ago, perhaps there was sort of a very formal recruitment process and 
certainly in early conversations at insight forums, we often had very frustrated insight leaders say, oh, my company makes me work through this process and we've got to use XYZ preferred recruitment agency who've got no specialist knowledge in this area at all. And it was quite a breakthrough when people started to be able to use more specialist agencies. But then a real step on again for us to just sort of think of networking and LinkedIn and our own personal contacts actually is sort of a preferred source very often for the best recruits. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's always a challenge in our industry because not many people take on graduates and train them. Very often we're looking for people with, you know, three, four years experience and a lot of those people don't exist. So the other thing that I would say in terms of advice is, and I know we'll probably come on to talk about this, about experience within the organization and how important it is, that business understanding. And so I'd say, don't be afraid of also looking internally within your organization. It might not be someone who's got those analytics or research skills, but they might have other transferable skills and they also will have that knowledge and understanding of your business. So I have had a lot of success with kind of bringing people across from different areas. So particularly people that have worked in stores when I worked in retail and also, you know, a, a member of crew coming into the, the, the team at BA when I was at BA. So and, and they were very, very successful coming into those roles and, you know, subsequently learning all of the, the, the tricks of the trade, if you like, in terms of research and analytic skills. But coming in from a, from a, a more operational area. So I, I, again, I'd, I'd kind of like, I, my advice would be to think broadly. It's all about getting the right mix of people in the team anyway. So there might be different ways to access those people depending on the, the skill set that you're really looking for. Yeah. I totally agree. It's definitely about recruiting a team. You don't need a, a team of goalkeepers. If you're a football team, do you? Um, you need a series of individuals who together have complementary skills yeah. and can uh, make the overall team effective. But I also really like what you make about uh, not um, disregarding the potential that people who come from more of an operational background have got. I always remember back at Barclays, one of the, the best analysts that we had was somebody who had worked in pretty much every role in a Barclays branch. And not only did that give him a natural customer focus and understanding meeting people face-to-face -face and talking through their issues. But he also had an inherent understanding of where the data came from as well. Yes. And so many times when we were doing analysis, he would say, oh, yes, I know that that report will say that. But what you don't realize is that that's the default option for every personal banker out there. <laughs> or that's yeah. the one that they know that they can tick without getting criticized in their performance yeah. review. So don't be misled by thinking there's this major trend going on there. All that's happened is that people have uh, clocked on to the fact that that's the safe response on yeah, a, a system. That's such great insight, isn't it, in itself? Yeah, you could just take <laughs> yeah. people down totally the wrong path, though, <laughs> yeah. couldn't you? If you know, if you don't have that sort of in-house learning, which you can only get from from operational experience. So, what about the sort of skills and attributes that you have particularly looked for? You mentioned that some of those you might find elsewhere in the organisation, and they might be transferable. But what are the key things? Because they're often trade-offs, aren't? For me, I think that it's often capabilities that are not about technical skill, actually, just going back to the point we've just made. You know, you can test for technical skill by giving them some data and asking them to 
come back with their thoughts on that data, the insights, implications, etc. So you can test for kind of technical skill. A lot of what I've looked for when I've been recruiting are much more the sort of softer skills. Uh, that kind of capability that we often talk about, which is not just the ability to extract the insight, but how they communicate that back into the business, their stakeholder management, how they take people with their influencing skills, that not being afraid to have conversations at all levels of the business, those sorts of skills, I think. And just like that problem solving and and curiosity, the, the, the things that you really want your insight team to have as a whole, I think those are things that you want as skills across your whole team, really. And just that I always love to hear about, you know, people's excitement about kind of working and doing what we do. I mean, I love my job. I've always loved what I do. And I, that, I just think that's infectious. And, you know, when people really enjoy it and they come to work and they bring that enjoyment and that fun into the team, then that just actually creates a whole culture and atmosphere within the team where, you know, we're all working together, being very collaborative. That's another key skill. I think the way that you work with other people and your kind of collaboration skills and, and just, like, you know, bringing all of that together to kind of like make the team so much more than its constituent parts, if you know what I mean. It's like you said earlier about your analogy with the football team. It's like the win, the winning teams are not always the ones with the, with the, you know, with the amazing players. It's actually about being a team and how you work together in order to kind of like embed that insight within your organization and, and how you go about doing that to sort of make you a real kind of force within the within the company. So with such a, a wide range of skills and attributes that we're looking for, have you over time developed uh, either particular exercises or favorite questions that you ask in interviews, ways to to really find who are the the candidates that have got that potential? Yeah. So I mean I tend to always I'm quite structured in the way that I work anyway. So, you know, if I've got a JD, I would have all of those kind of skills on it. And then it would always be at the core, usually of a second interview would be some sort of capability test and, and, and also some sort of presentation of insight information, either as a pre-task or actually I've been told that I've been, I was quite cruel in one organization because I would actually give that to the candidates when they came in and give them 40 minutes to sort of look at it and then to not do a PowerPoint, but literally just on a flip chart, kind of tell me what they saw in the data and, you know, what they thought the key points and implications were. Because in reality, that is something that we often have to do in our jobs, you know, we, in one of my teams, there was always a joke about, oh, what's today's insight emergency? Because there'll always be someone who needs something and it's got to happen today because there's a presentation tomorrow and the CEO needs to talk about this or that. And you've just got to be able to kind of do something on the hoof and therefore you do need to be able to see that skill. And for me, one of the ways of actually understanding that was to just get someone to do something on the spot. But I know that can be perceived as a bit cruel by some people. But, but very <laughs> effective. I, I'm, I'm laughing as I'm hearing you talk about it because I'm thinking about our team at the IMA uh, now, some of whom I've known for over 15 years because they, they worked with me at Barclays. 
And several of them listening to this uh, interview now are going to be thinking, yeah, James made us do that when we started at Barclays <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, oh, that's great. So we all develop our favorite sort of tests and techniques and whatever during interviews for bringing people on. Thinking about as we move people into joining the organization and that induction phase, any top tips that you've picked up along the way from doing that effectively? Yeah. Um, just before we finish on that last topic, actually, James, there was another thought that just came into my head, which was around kind of like personality and fit. And I think one of the dangers, and it's something that I know I fell into probably earlier in my career when I was recruiting, is that there's this tendency to recruit in your own image. So, you know, there's certain people you're going to get on with because they're very like you and you think, oh, they'll fit in the team. They'll be, they'll be great. And whilst you don't want disruptive elements in your team, it's, I think, quite important that you, you, you make sure that you get that mix going back to the football analogy. You know, you need different people. And some of the things that I've done before has been to, you know, use some of those kind of like, you know, those personality tests. So I, whether it be Myers-Briggs or the one which has got complete finisher in, and I can never remember the name of it. But, but you know, because I know because I'm not a complete finisher, I'm a, I'm a resource investigator that I need complete finishers in my team. And therefore, it's really important that you, that, you know, you get that mix. There's no point in having lots of me's because, you know, the chances are that, you know, maybe projects don't always get finished. So. <laughs> You know, that's, that's, that's a key thing. But just moving on to your question about, you know, when you're kind of like onboarding people and kind of bringing them into an organization. We were just talking earlier about the, the fact that, you know, if you work in a corporate organization, then you've got customers and you will probably have done lots of work on a kind of customer journey. You know, how do you acquire new customers? And, and, and effectively, how do you onboard them to your organization? How do you welcome them? And then how do you retain them through the lifetime or their life cycle of the, of, of their kind of their time with you? You know, how do you drive loyalty? And yet we don't often use exactly those principles when we're actually recruiting people. And I've had this experience myself when I've joined somewhere and you know, the laptop's not ready, <laughs> you having to use your personal email to kind of communicate with other people in the organization. There's nothing being set up for you in terms of inductions with people or anything like that. Given that Deborah's just joined the IMA within the, the last two months, <laughs> I, I'm squirming just at the moment as she's listing all these different things, trying to tick them off in my mind, thinking, how many of these did we not get you right? You gave me a great <laughs> induction, so don't worry about that, James. No, absolutely. But I think that I think it's always important that you feel that welcome. I'd say one thing that often people are on quite long notice periods. So you recruit them, you get them really excited about joining your organization. And then there's this huge gap of three months and they know they've got their start day and they might have had some communication from HR around what time to arrive or whatever, but they've absolutely heard nothing from you. So I always try to or if it's someone in a manager in my team that's recruiting someone to remind them to always try and just give that person a call through that three month period just to say or to drop them a line just saying we're still super excited about you joining. There's some great stuff going on and there's some projects we want to get you involved in or just kind of like keeping that communication going and the momentum sort of going, which I think is a, a nice thing to do. So and then on the day that they're joining, I think now we've got a lot of hybrid working and 
I found that in one company I was in the, you know, there wasn't always a consistency about people being there on the person's first day. So was their laptop going to be delivered to their home or was it going to be delivered at work? Were they expected to come in? And I just think it's really nice if the team can be there on the first day, given that we all work in a hybrid way now and the the laptop's ready, that person's welcomed, they get taken out for lunch or whatever, and they just like feel that they've, they've made the right decision <laughs> to join that organization. And then just in terms of the rest of the, you know, induction, I don't think necessarily you have to set up everything for them, but I think that they should have something which gives them a list of key stakeholders that they need to make appointments with. And just for me, like some of the most useful things are every organization has a language. There's usually a kind of, you know, acronyms that you need to know, you know, stuff that can just kind of really floor you in your first couple of weeks in a company where you come out of a meeting and you think, I've got no idea what an RBD is or an ASR or whatever. <laughs> And, and, and it's just really nice to just have a little crib sheet in the back of your, of your notebook to kind of refer to, oh, right, okay, that's what they're talking about. And, and just like where to find things on the corporate kind of intranet, stuff like when are you going to get paid, you know, just stuff that you might need to fill in about pension inclusion, all of those sorts of things, which are not necessarily done by HR teams anymore. I found more and more it's really up to individual teams to just sort out their own people. So you have to really think, you have to have a little H HR hat on, if you like, when you're doing these things. Yeah, you really do. You're listening to the Transforming Insight podcast published by the Insight Management Academy, the world's leading authority on transforming corporate insight teams. I remember when we were talking in the, the podcast interview that we did nearly 18 months back, I think now. And one of the lines that stood out for me in terms of things that you did when you joined a new organization was to ask right at the start, so how does this organization make its money? And given what we were just saying about people who come from an operating operational environment within an organization, having an inbuilt advantage in some ways in terms of understanding the company and how it works, its relationship with, with customers, how do you go about inducting new recruits into that side of things? Because I think we both think that that's such a critical aspect of, of a foundation, if you like, for a future successful insight career, isn't it, in that company? Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that I always do is get whoever's coming in, because what you find is that as soon as you're in an organization, suddenly you're into doing the work. So you've got to, no matter how hungry you are for the resource, you've got to give that person some time to uh, actually understand the business. I think that's critically important. So if that's spending time in stores, going out with an engineer, which is kind of like one of the things that we do at British Gas or, you know, what, what, whatever that is, you know, if you work in FMCG, I guess it's kind of being on the factory floor, do that kind of thing. Do our researchers at Virgin Atlantic get to, to fly across the world several times? <laughs> is that a part of the induction? Well, yeah, they get the free flights. So that's... <laughs> That's a nice perk of working for an airline. But yeah, I mean, even I remember in my first week at BA doing a transatlantic flight and, you know, talking to the crew because it's the best way of actually finding out what, what goes on, you know, understanding how they do a service, 
you know, try not to get in their way, but, you know, just also, you know, understanding some of the pain points from their perspective, because although subsequently at BA, we did a lot of projects around kind of understanding colleague experience alongside the customer experience, just kind of hearing it firsthand, you know, what are some of the issues and, it's very much appreciated by the operational teams as well, because I think very often they don't feel like they're listened to, especially by head office staff, as they there's less kind words that they might use for head office staff sometimes. <laughs> but that lack of understanding and that kind of lack of communication between the two. And actually, if you go in and you say, look, I'm really interested actually in how it works around here and what some of the issues are, like you mentioned earlier about finding your you know, a way round some of the things like the, the colleague that had actually said, well, of course, you always fill it in like this because that's the best way to get a good score or whatever. You know, they will, they, they, you'll get to some truths by having those conversations or, you know, what are some of the pain points for, for them? And therefore, maybe w- when you're looking at the information back from customers and they're saying, well, you know, there's a big drop-off point here in terms of conversions. Actually, you can understand because you've actually spoken to the digital team or the 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 the, the store team, and then you actually understand why it is that that's a problem. Yeah, and if you can help with that experience and understanding at an early stage, it's such a great foundation, isn't it? Yeah. For then any sort of subsequent more technical research or analysis that people do, because you've got that context. Yeah. Yeah. Any of the data that we see is only a a reflection of real world activity in some way, isn't it? But if people haven't actually seen that real world activity themselves, you you can miss huge amounts of important insight. And I think in addition to that, also, you know, I I think there's always this kind of with the commercial teams and the, the marketing teams. I mean, sometimes they sit in the same place, sometimes they don't, and there's a little bit of a, a gap there, but it's, Coming back to your point about that commercial understanding is, you know, to spend time with them and understand what it is that, what are the, what are the main drivers of the, the prof, what drives the profit within the organization? Because sometimes that's quite surprising. You can look at the business objectives and say, well, actually, we've got almost like an equal kind of focus here on these two parts of the business, let's say. But actually, 80% of the revenue comes from one part of the business. And it's actually always, I think, very, very useful to know that, you know, what's, what's, what's growing or our kind of future opportunities and what's the, the, if you like, the, the mainstay of the business that we, that really needs to kind of retain customers and, 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 and continue to, to, to be stable, if you like, because that's also a job to be done. I think that. You know, within companies, it's not just insight teams that are guilty of this. It can be across the whole company that shiny new things and ideas are often the ones where everybody kind of starts running towards. And actually, you've also not got to forget about the core part of your business and what that business actually does. Right. So we've talked about skills and attributes that we look for in candidates, ways of trying to find out if people have got them, ways of approaching induction into an organization. You've got people that passed <laughs> through their first three, six months, however long the, the induction period uh, it takes. Do you take a simply structured approach then to thinking about ongoing learning and development, or is, is that yeah. more difficult in a in an insight team? I think that you—that's a definite need to to do that. 
I think as an insight leader, you're taking a bit of a step back and looking at capability across your team and where the gaps are. And of course, that's where IMA comes in really to understand where those capability gaps are, what collectively as a team do we need to do differently in order to transform. But I think in terms of individuals within the organization and people that you're bringing through, understanding through PDPs what their individual aspirations are and how you can support them. And I certainly, even though people might not report directly into me, I would always kind of try and make it my business to kind of understand and know what the PDPs of everyone in my team is. I mean, I know that some companies have got very large teams and maybe this is not feasible for everybody, but, you know, within a team of up to 20 people, you can kind of know across your team you know, what, what are people's ambitions and what are, what's within their PDPs? Because then if there's opportunities come up and you've got that knowledge. So just as an example, if there's people that really want to have experience of presenting, for instance, I would always kind of have that in the back of my mind. Well, when's the next opportunity? Can I give that person a, a chance to, to do that presentation? Maybe or you know, with me top and tailing or just give them a chance to actually present part of that just so that they've had that experience. So I think it's a really good idea to, we'll certainly have PDPs in place, personal development plans, and then also to be aware of them. So one more aspect I'd like to uh, explore with you before we close. We talked about people's ambitions uh, and what inspires them to be at work and what they hope to get out of it. But how do you then reward them and make them feel valued for the things they, they do? Any particular tricks or tips that you'd like to pass on about that? Yeah, I, I think it's a challenge because in a lot of teams, you know, in a lot of companies now, structures are quite flattened. And often there's, when you talk to people about their ambitions, it's, well, I want to get to the next level. I want to be a manager or whatever. And I always try and kind of break that down. Well, what is it that you actually yeah. want to do? Because I'd say that to quote, Cheryl Sandberg, I think it is, isn't it? She always says that it's like, it's not a ladder, it's a jungle gym. And actually it's about kind of moving sideways and learning sort of different skills. And actually you can get a lot of fulfillment from a job that maybe you've done for quite a while by kind of stretching yourself into other aspects of that role. It's not necessarily about getting the next level up. And I think that's really about kind of understanding motivations and and trying to give everybody a little bit of a stretch in your team. I mean, you're mainly kind of getting to end of year anyway. And in, in many organizations, you're being calibrated against your peers and being expected to stretch your objectives anyway. So I think really thinking about that at the beginning of the year and saying, what would really motivate and stretch you as an individual and how can we as a team. And to be honest, if you're trying to transform your insight team anyway, you'll probably want to be stretching them. So all of that should really nicely align. I think the other thing is don't underestimate just actually just giving nice feedback when it's, you know, it, it's, it's just so lovely sometimes, I think, to just get a note or, you know, something just to say, well done or thank you, you know, it, I think that just doesn't can go so far in terms of like feeling valued. And sometimes, for instance, when someone within the organization has said to me, oh, so-and-so came and presented last week. They did a great job, by the way. I'd say, oh, would you mind just dropping them an email and letting them know that? Because 
it's just such a lovely thing to receive from a stakeholder. Totally agree with you. Thank you so much. That's great and really insightful. Thanks so much also for the support you've given the IMA, both an insight leader in so many organisations over the year and the work that you're already now doing uh, with us. Deborah's working, as I said earlier, as one of our part-time advisors at the IMA, supporting a whole range of well-known organisations in the UK and beyond aren't you, in terms of their insight capability development. And I know that many people listening to the podcast will be well aware of the IMA and what we do. But if you're not, get in touch, info at insight-management.org, and we can arrange a conversation and talk to you more, of course, about the things that we do to help with insight team development, insight leader development, and thinking about the impact that insight makes in your organisation. So this episode concludes our focus on leading insight people. And in season six of the new year, we'll turn our attention to the ways in which successful insight teams can optimise their impact, the next key area of focus that we're going to look at. But before we finish season five, we're going to have a few more episodes for you, starting with one of our popular interviews with another senior client-side insight leader. And after that, we'll do a review of some of the topics that have come up at Insight Forums most recently, where some of the most senior insight leaders in the UK and the US have met and discussed the things uppermost on their minds as they try to transform their insight teams. So if those interest you, please join us for the next episodes of a Transforming Insight podcast. Thank you for listening. Transforming Insight is available on all leading podcast platforms. Subscribe now to get notified when the next episode is released. Check out all the resources in the show notes and sign up to our email list. The Transforming Insight podcast is brought to you by the Insight Management Academy, who reserves the rights to the content. For more information on any of the ideas discussed in the episode, please visit www.insight-management.org.